Where do you go to from there? <laughs> I uh, discovered something this week. Um, actually, discovered is the wrong word. Joe pointed it out to me. Um, and I'm going to share it with you because it made my life easier and it might just make one or two of your lives easier. You know that like awkward thing when you book tickets to come to church and you have to fill in the same details over and over and over again, especially if you've got kids, right? Well, if you actually just log in and create an account and save those details, wonder of wonders, uh, it fills in 90% of that information for you automatically. So Joe, thank you very much. And uh, for anybody out there that uh, that makes your life just a little bit easier when it comes to booking tickets, uh, you can send the flowers and the cards and the chocolates to Joe, um, because that comes from her, not from, from me. Um, that's got nothing to do with the preach this morning. Uh, we're busy with a series entitled Becoming Emotionally Mature. Uh, and I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older, now that I'm on the other side of 40, by a few, um, I've realized that there's times I'm prone to be more emotionally mature and there's times where I'm prone to being, shall we say, less emotionally mature. Uh, last Sunday morning, something happened in our family that I know never happens in anybody else's family. Uh, and that is that Indira and I had an argument in the car on the way to church. Shocking. I know you can't relate at all. Um, and until we'd, have a, until we'd had a chance to talk about it and lovingly resolve it, and don't worry, we did, um, I was a little bit less emotionally mature. My world is not right when I have tension with my wife. I don't know how many of you uh, can relate. And I really realized that when one of our kids did something very minor without thinking, uh, and I came down on them out of proportion to what they had done, and I immediately realized, man, this is actually not in response to what my child has done. This is actually in response to how I'm feeling, and I'm not being emotionally mature right now. And so... I apologized to them unreservedly for acting out of proportion. Um, but absolutely, I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't. Another situation that can cause us to swing emotionally, letting our emotions dictate how we handle things rather than controlling our emotions and responding calmly and appropriately, is when we're tired, when we're fatigued. And that's actually the situation I want to talk about this morning, becoming emotionally mature as we deal with fatigue. Because I think it's the most common feeling that everyone has at the moment. Fatigue. We talk about Zoom fatigue. Everyone is seriously fatigued, and it's gotten to the point where it's affecting our schedule, who we're prepared to make time for, worshiping as a community on a Sunday morning, going to life group. It's affecting our health. It's affecting our relationships. I think it's on a scale that we haven't had to deal with before. And that's actually a big part of the problem, that the last piece of that phrase that we haven't had to deal with before. The situation we find ourselves in is unique because everyone is going through it simultaneously, dealing with this new fatigue of the new way that the world works, stress from 18 months of global pandemic, this strange kind of dealing with people fatigue where you aren't actually dealing with people, at least not face to face. And no one seems to be ahead of us on this curve, and so we're all kind of blundering down it together, very often making reactive choices, reacting in the moment rather than making well-thought-out choices. But the truth is that we're not the first people to have to deal with stressfully changing situations. God has graciously been leading His people for thousands of years, dealing with our collective emotional immaturity at times, 
and kindly leading people through those situations. And so we're going to consider four biblical rhythms to deal with fatigue this morning. And then we're going to look at beyond just how we structure our lives. We're going to, we're going to look to the heart and speak about entering into a specific kind of rest that only God can bring. So firstly, four biblical rhythms for long-term emotional health in the face of fatigue. Firstly, intentionally rest. Secondly, intentionally delegate. Thirdly, intentionally be alone. And fourthly, intentionally be alone with those close to you. Intentionally rest. We see back at the very beginning in Genesis 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And when God constitutes a people to himself, he tells them, remember the Sabbath, that seventh day where he rested, by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. It's comprehensive. The first essential rhythm in our lives for long-term emotional health is rest. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? We all know this to the point that we, we often don't hear it because we feel the pressure to go, go, go. I can do just a little bit more. But from the beginning, God intended for us to rest. Rest is physically required, but actually spiritually, when we don't rest, it actually messes with us. And we're going to get to that in part two. One of the most common things I hear when talking to people is how the new COVID workplace is messing with people's ability to rest. Working longer hours because Zoom meetings make everything take longer and your deliverables haven't decreased. We thought that cutting out a commute uh, would make our lives easier because we don't have to spend one to two hours a day in traffic. But actually now it seems our work hours have extended beyond our old commute hours. Working more weekend hours because we can't get everything done in the week. And when home has become an extension of the office, then home hours become an extension of work hours. And now you're expected to answer emails and handle emergencies during office or home hours. And it's a real battle, I know. We constantly wrestle with this in our house. Is a week of leave really leave if you just answer a few emails and, and attend one meeting and do a training course? Can it still be a day of rest, even if it's not a full day? I just did three hours of work. I rested for the rest of the day, right? Anybody relate? When we turn to Scripture, we get the answer our Creator intended, the way we were designed to need a day of rest, to need a day of appreciating everything God has done for us. Rest is not just the absence of work, of so many hours between work. It's the intentional switching off from what we have to do and switching on appreciation of what God has done. When God rested, he delighted in everything that he had made on that seventh day. And what the scientists will tell us is that uh, simply switching on Netflix or your streaming service of choice and just sitting there is not actually the kind of rest that you really need. Rest requires disengaging from work, but also disengaging from technology. I know, it's a horror. 
One of my top five gifts is called input. It means I basically just want to assimilate information all the time. I want to be reading Wired articles and IFL Science and rugby opinion pieces and listening to stuff all the time. So I, I, I get how difficult it can be to switch off. But I was chatting to an older leader some months, six, nine months back, and he actually said to me, Gareth, I also have that gift, and I've actually had to intentionally make times where I fast from media, because otherwise I actually get completely overwhelmed with all the news of what is happening in the world. Let me give you two practical things that you can do to help you find better rest. Firstly, identify if your lack of rest is a seasonal or a permanent reality, and adjust accordingly. Identify if your lack of rest is a seasonal or permanent reality, and adjust accordingly. Sometimes you have a season of busyness where rest feels impossible. Maybe you're studying and working at the same time, or you have a specific unusual project. If that's the case, the most important thing is to make sure that your seasonal reality doesn't become a permanent reality. Hard deadline in your calendar. This is when this project ends. This is when the studying ends, and that's where I'm going to go back to proper rhythms of rest, even if right now it's something that feels completely impossible. For some of you, it might have already become a permanent reality. You can no longer do what you need to do without eating into your rest, and that can be a lot harder to deal with. But God has created us for rest, and without rest, we will not cope. We'll become less emotionally mature, make bad decisions, burn out, suffer health consequences. My best practical advice for you is to talk it out in your life group. Now, if I try to give advice without knowing your situation from up here, I'm probably going to give you bad advice that's going to come back and bite you. But in your life group with people who know you, you can talk about this and get godly advice and have people pray for you, and you can make some adjustments in your life. So number one, is it seasonal or is it permanent and adjust accordingly? Number two, mark a no technology slot on your calendar every week. Full confession, it's not in my calendar yet, so that's the first thing I'm doing tomorrow morning. Okay, I'm joining you guys tomorrow morning, marking a no technology calendar slot on my week so that I can rest my brain as much as everything else. Second biblical rhythm for emotional health in the face of fatigue, intentionally delegate. In Exodus 18, Moses had led the people of God out of Egypt and he's leading them through the desert and his father-in-law comes to visit him uh, and here's what his father-in-law sees in Exodus 18. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions." Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. What Jethro, that's Moses' father-in-law, sees is that Moses is going to burn out. He's literally, single-handedly trying to handle the relational disputes of a community numbering in the millions. And we can look at that and say, well, of course he's going to burn out. No one can do that. But then we turn around and we ourselves try to take on more than we can handle. And Jethro gives Moses great wisdom. 
He tells him to focus on what only he can do and his unique leadership calling, which is to teach the people God's word and how to live. And all the other stuff, find reliable, God-honoring people and let them handle it. And only when they can't handle it does it come to you. See, it's so easy to get tripped up by our own self-importance. Only I can handle this properly. Listen to what Moses said. The people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this because Moses was apparently the most humble man who ever lived. But I know if I said that sentence, what I would mean by it, which is like, actually, I'm the only one who can handle this, right? Maybe that's not what Moses meant. But when I read that sentence, if I said similar things, and I have, I would mean, actually, it's got to revolve around me. That's what happens when we want to control everything when we don't want to delegate. And again, it's hard to get super practical on this from up front, speaking to hundreds of different situations in the hall and at home. And again, this is where your life group comes in. But let me just say this. This is a fantastic place to bring gospel values into your workplace. Because one way to look at this, and and the way we're kind of looking at it this morning, is to say, well, how can I build sustainable emotional maturity rhythms into my life, delegate so I'm not overwhelmed? But actually, a better way to look at this is to say, well, how can I demonstrate God's love to people in my workplace? And one way is to be encouraging and empowering and lifting up those around you and sharing the knowledge that you have and passing on skills so that they can grow and they can be blessed and then being there to help them when they make mistakes because they don't have the experience that you have. It's an incredible way to love and bless. And then also you're delegating and you have emotional health. It's amazing how when we do things God's way, the benefits flow to us as well. But when we hold on to our own self-importance, our own need for recognition, whatever it is, and we don't delegate, we're heading for fatigue and burnout and handling life in an emotionally immature way. Third rhythm to build into your life to deal with fatigue is intentionally be alone. We're going to, for these next two points, consider Jesus and how he lived his life and handled fatigue. And one of the things that we see is that whenever there is a potential for Jesus to be overwhelmed, he just leaves and spends time alone, him and God. And I know that sounds crazy. Jesus, the Son of God, needing time out from ministry because he's fatigued, but that is exactly what we see. Jesus is baptized by his cousin. He's about to begin his public ministry of teaching and healing. What does he do? He goes and spends 40 days alone in the wilderness. He's got this big crowd of people around him. He's going to choose 12 disciples to follow him and minister with him. It's a massive decision. Luke 6, Jesus went up to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. In Mark 1, we see Jesus ministering in a town, and we read that evening, the people came to Jesus, all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at his door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus has had a crazy evening. The whole town has gathered outside his door, bringing him the sick and the demon-possessed, and it's incredible. Jesus is healing people. He's driving out demons. Imagine being there. 
And it must have been emotionally and physically exhausting seeing all these people in pain, the lows of that, and the emotional highs of seeing people being healed. It's exhausting. And so notice what he does. Very early, while it was still dark, the people were there after dark. He gets up while it is still dark. Sometimes rest is about sleeping. But often it's not just about sleep, it's about being in God's presence, just you and Him, and allowing the Spirit of God to refresh you. In Matthew 14, we read, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist, remember that's his cousin, has been beheaded, he's been brutally murdered, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. It's an emotionally difficult situation, so he goes to spend time by himself. And then what happens is, the people learn where he is, and they follow him. And he has compassion on them. And he teaches them and he heals the sick and he realizes they have no food and he multiplies the little bit of food they have to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. And then, after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was still there alone. Over and over and over again, we see that Jesus was able to teach and heal and drive out demons because he was filled with the Spirit of God and because he regularly, whenever he needed to, got away to spend time alone, most often in prayer. We'll see in our next point that he often spent time alone with those closest to him as well. When you track it, it comes out as a major part of how Jesus was able to accomplish as much as he did in such a short time in a part of the world where there's no mass communication or transport. Jesus kept going by regularly being by himself and praying. I'm not going to be prescriptive around method here because all of our lives look different. And so what it looks like for me will be different to you. But I am going to say this. You need to be spending time alone just you and God. And I want to encourage you, your quiet time is a part of that. But actually, I think we maybe need even just a little bit more than just that. Jesus had to leave a hectic schedule, have that schedule interrupt him again, love and serve those people. And then he didn't just say, oh, I guess I don't have time. Workers caught up with me, so I don't actually have time with this. This is what I find amazing. That's how we are, right? We try to make time out, and then something interrupts us. We go, oh, okay, I guess I just don't have time to take time out. No, he leaves again because he realizes how vital this is. One tiny little way that I do this is I have 17 minutes every day where it's not raining, and I walk to fetch my son Matthew from play school down the road. Now, please don't ask what it says about me that I said 17 minutes and not 15 minutes. We're not going there right now. But actually, firstly, it's crazy how sometimes I have to fight myself for those 17 minutes. I'm busy. I'm trying to finish something. I have a call to make, an email to write, a meeting to schedule. But those 17 minutes are 17 of the most important minutes in my day because I just get to be alone and reflect, and speak to God, and look at the beautiful mountains, and appreciate what God has done, and, and grab my boy. We need this quiet time in our lives if we're going to be emotionally healthy in the face of this fatigue. Your quiet time with God, but actually times outside of that as well, where it's kind of unstructured. You just get to be alone, and you just get to be with God. Fourth biblical principle, intentionally be alone with those closest to you. I'm not going to go through all the verses on this one, but for every instance, we see Jesus spending time alone in prayer. We see Jesus leaving the crowds to be with his closest friends. Sometimes the closest 12, sometimes the closest three. At times, he literally escapes the crowds to go and spend time with these guys. 
Jesus' ministry involved him being around a lot of people in situations where he was continually giving of himself, time, energy, emotions, and where he wasn't in a position to really get a whole lot back. He taught large crowds. He had lines of people coming to him with needs to be loved, to be healed, and he lovingly did it every single time. But those were situations that were emotionally give, give, give. He continually gave of himself, and there was no opportunities for, for, for him to have his emotional tank to be filled, as it were. And so he intentionally spends time alone in intimacy with those closest to him. One of the main changes we faced in the world in the last 18 months is that many situations that were relationally give and take have become relationally give. Let me explain by talking about two meetings I have a week. Every week on a Tuesday and a Thursday, I'm part of a church staff meeting with Brendan and Joanne and Natalie. And on Tuesdays, it's in person, and on Thursdays, it's via Zoom. Both are work meetings, uh, both have busy agendas, both are operational, but I think the Thursday meeting is a little bit more give, and the Tuesday meeting is a little bit more give and take. Same people, same type of meetings. Why? Well, on a Tuesday when I arrive, Brendan offers me a cup of tea. It's, it's, it's insignificant, right? But it's not. It's not insignificant. On Tuesday, there's moments of collect, collect, connecting uh, relationally before the meeting starts and, and some chatter and informal conversations and give and take. And of course, on Zoom, we allow people time to share, but it's not the same. You know what I mean? Scientists tell us that subconsciously we have to work harder in online environments because body language and facial expressions are much harder to read, and it drains us without us realizing it. On Tuesday, if somebody says something and it makes me think of something else, I can just kind of throw it into the conversation and it's part of the flow. And on Thursday when I did it, it just felt like I was cutting somebody off and interrupting the meeting and being really rude. Maybe I just need to learn to interrupt less. But you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Even work meetings that required a lot of us in terms of presenting reports or chairing a meeting had an element of relational give and take. And by virtue of it not being face-to-face, so much of that has been removed. But now here's the thing. We haven't compensated by adding in more intentional moments where we have our emotional buckets filled. In fact, we've had less of those moments as we face lockdown. We've had less socializing, less time in church, less time in life groups. Two weekends in a, in a row, just after we came out of this last hard lockdown, we had to bail on my parents, uh, plans with my parents and plans with friends because someone in the family had a slight cold. And one of my children was in tears as we had to say, well, sorry, you can't have that friend over anymore. Your sibling has a fever. But dad, I, I haven't had anyone over in so long. And, and that child was just expressing what we're all feeling, maybe a little bit more honestly than, than we sometimes do. We're giving far more relationally because of how so much of life is happening on screen while at the same time having less opportunities for relational intimacy. And there's a kind of relational fatigue that I believe is not solved simply by having more rest and less screen time and more sleep. There's a kind of fatigue we're facing at the moment, a relational fatigue that counterintuitively is only solved by deep relationships. I realized this while speaking to Indira some weeks back. She's telling me that she's so tired from online meetings, and she has six-plus hours of meetings online every day. She feels she doesn't have energy to see anybody anymore. 
Now, if you know my wife, Indira, at all, you know that's not her, okay? I'm the introvert who loves to spend time with people but gets drained by it, but she's the opposite. She gets energized by people. And I said, there's something wrong if you are feeling like you, don't have, you can't see people. And in speaking through it, I realized that what I've just described is exactly what's happening to her. She's not actually relationally tired. She's tired of relationships that are give, 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 because it's always through screen, and where she's not able to get anything back. And the solution to that kind of tired is not rest in the form of sleep and being alone. It is for other kinds of tired. But the solution for that kind of tired is actually, in a sense, to almost force yourself to intentionally be with those close to you, because what you need is intimacy. And it's the lack of that that's making you feel so relationally drained and counterintuitively preventing you from experiencing the very thing that you desperately need. I want to encourage you, push yourself as far as you're comfortable with COVID, but if this resonates with you at all, push yourself back into situations of relational intimacy. Coffee with a friend, life group, service on a Sunday morning. Find ways for relational intimacy again where you can receive as well as just give. One more thing before I move on. One of the most important intentional times you can spend alone if you're married is with your spouse. Speaking to people, I see one of the things that has happened is our lives have got so busy as spouses, we're living past each other and our tracks are not kind of connecting as it were. We've lost something in terms of this complexity and juggling kids and juggling work in new ways and we're not having these moments to connect. And the first person you should be scheduling moments of being alone with weekly, at least, is your spouse. So, four biblical rhythms to put into your life to deal with fatigue so that you're emotionally healthy. Plan to rest, working on your schedule. Let go of your pride and intentionally delegate. Spend intentional time alone with God to be spiritually filled. And spend intentional time alone with those closest to you to be relationally filled. But that still leaves us with two issues. Sometimes your situation is so stressed that for a season you simply can't have healthy rhythms. Gareth, I have a newborn and a two-year-old at the same time. What you're saying sounds great, but there's just no ways I get these rhythms in my life right now. Or secondly, you might say, I, I have these rhythms and they're healthy rhythms and I'm still feeling overwhelmed with fatigue. If you don't have them, you will definitely be fatigued, but it's possible to have healthy rhythms and still be overwhelmed with fatigue. So how do you deal with seasons where healthy rhythms are impossible, and what gives with feeling fatigued even when you have healthy rhythms? I said earlier that when we don't rest, it messes with us, because rest is not just physical, it's spiritual. And probably the best place to see this is in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read a passage from Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. And your response as I read this passage might be a little bit like um, head scratch. Okay, I'm not quite sure what he's saying. And, and that's because the author of the book of Hebrews was writing to a people that had a rich history and understanding of the Hebrew people. And so they would automatically kind of get the stories that he's referring to. And we, we don't always get them. So I'm going to read the passage. And if it's a little bit of a head scratcher, don't worry, I am going to unpack it. So we're reading Hebrews chapter 3. The author writes, and I say the author just because Hebrews is the one book of the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. So, right, so as the Holy Spirit says, and you'll see the part in italics, that's a quote from Psalm 95. So as the Holy Spirit says, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my keyword rest. End the quote from Psalm 95, the author speaks. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day, we read it earlier, in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay, so let's unpack what's happening in this passage. The author is referring back to Israel after they were slaves in Egypt with hard toil and no rest. And God had rescued them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And as part of the Ten Commandments, the same God who rested on the seventh day of creation told his people they needed to do the same. And then Israel go into a period of sin and Moses asks God, even though these people are sinful, God, will you still send your presence with your people? And God says in Exodus 33, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God agrees that he will remain with his people and as they go into the promised land, they will achieve rest. Now, fast forward and the Israelites are ready to cross into the land that God promised them. But in fear, they believe that the people in the land are too strong for them. They doubt God. And so they spend the next 40 years not entering into the land and a new generation is raised up. 
Now, David, years later, is writing Psalm 95, looking at that situation, and he says, well, if God promised them rest and they didn't enter into the land, then they didn't enter into God's rest. Then the author of Hebrews comes along and he looks at Exodus 33 and Psalm 95 and back at the book of Genesis and Jesus, and he does some more theological reflection. And this is his logic. God rested after creating the heavens and the earth. That's rest from work. And he intends for us to enter into that rest as he promised Moses in Exodus 33 in that immediate context talking about the promised land. But it must be possible to miss God's rest because that's what happened to that generation who wandered the wilderness according to Psalm 95. But we also know that the next generation that did enter the promised land under Joshua still didn't achieve the full rest of God because David speaks of another day of calling people to rest. Okay, you're tracking with me. Have I lost everybody? The main thing is that God has a promise of rest, and it's possible for us to miss that. The key to that rest is verse 10. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work just as God did from his. The reason we can have all the right rhythms and still feel fatigued is because internally we haven't entered God's rest and rested from our work. And the reason we can go through a season of not having the actual time to rest properly, such as when we have small children that physically don't let us sleep, is, is because we can still enter God's rest and spiritually rest from our work even when our lives are busy. We see in Hebrews 3 and 4 that the reason the Israelites of that generation were excluded from God's rest is because their hearts were hard. They heard God's message of good news and it was of no value to them because they failed to believe it. They were told, God has rescued you, and they'd seen it with their own eyes, and he will protect you and provide for you, and their lack of belief caused them to miss out on the promises of God. God promised to provide food in the form of manna in the wilderness. They collected double because they doubted him. God miraculously provided water for them in the desert, but instead of trusting in his goodness, the next time they ran out, they grumbled and complained. God rescued them from the largest military force in the world at the time, the Egyptian army, through signs and wonders, but they didn't have faith that he would give them victory in the promised land. Do you see what rest is ultimately about? It's about trusting in God's good news and his provision. And conversely, when we don't, we experience fatigue, we, we get tired, we burn out. Is it possible that you aren't just tired because you have work deadlines? Is it possible that you're tired because there's areas of your life where you aren't trusting God? When you don't trust God, your work never ends. It never ends in your head. You're constantly thinking about it. It never ends in your heart. You're constantly worried about it. That's not God's rest. We worry that our best isn't good enough when God has promised that Jesus' best makes us good enough. Having the rhythms of an emotionally healthy life are never going to be enough if our minds cannot rest because we lack faith in God, because then we're not entering into His rest. Add to that the stress and anxiety around COVID where we're looking to worldly realities and consuming news more than we're focused on the sovereignty of God. Add to that the stress and anxiety around our children where we're looking at all the difficulties that they're facing more than to the, than to the provision of God. 
Add to that loved ones getting sick, even passing away, all of these things together. And unless we're coming to God and presenting these things to Him in faith, we will be exhausted mentally, physically, spiritually. Alternatively, we can even go through seasons where rest seems impossible in terms of rhythms, and there must just be a season where our bodies will break. But despite those seasons, we can have rest in our hearts by entering into God's rest through faith in His ability to do what we cannot, to provide what we cannot, and His forgiveness of us despite our failings. Jesus earning what we cannot possibly earn. When Brendan invited us to reflect in worship earlier, just before Vessel came up, I I just had a sense of two things. I just had a sense of God's favor on us as his children. But then beyond that, God wanting us to know his pleasure in us. You know, I, I don't just want to love my kids. I want my kids to know that I love them. I want to grab them in the morning and hug them and tell them that I love them. And I, I just had a sense, and I think it ties into this thing of maybe forgiving your, not forgiving yourself where, where God has forgiven you. I had the sense of God's pleasure and Him wanting you to know His pleasure so that you don't feel like everything is up to you to handle yourself. So you don't feel like you can't let go of things and you've constantly got to hold on to them because if you don't take care of it, who will? I sense God wanting to say he's pleased and he loves you and he wants you to know that and he wants you to know that he has you and he wants you to be able to let go of those things because he's inviting you to rest. And maybe that's got to do with forgiving yourself for things that God has forgiven you and maybe wondering, well, you know, how, how can God be pleased with me? Yes, maybe he's forgiven me, but how can he be pleased with me? And so it causes you to hold on to things that you really need to let go of. And hand over to God. The author ends this passage calling on us for faith by speaking of God's word and how it cuts into our hearts and how God's word understands our attitudes and our ideas and and what we try to keep hidden from everybody else. Oh, I'm busy, but I'm okay. Don't worry, I've got it. No, God's word is beyond that. That's what's happening right now as I'm preaching. God's word is highlighting areas of your life. Maybe he's highlighting how you need to come to him in faith that he, that he loves you and he accepts you and he doesn't just forgive you, but he delights in you. Maybe it's highlighting how there's some unforgiveness in your life towards yourself. God has forgiven you, but you feel, oh, I messed up. How could he possibly love me? He does. He does. That's why you're hearing this right now. Maybe it's anxiety that you're holding on to, that you just are so focused on the problem rather than the goodness and the provision of God. I don't know exactly what it looks like for you, but there's an opportunity to respond in faith, not to hold on to unbelief. What we're going to do now is we're going to to take communion together. If you're in the venue, you should have got communion when you came in. I want to invite the band to come forward. Communion is such an incredible opportunity for God's grace to work in our lives. As we uh, take the wafer that represents his body broken for us, as we drink the juice that represents his blood spilled for us, it's an opportunity to respond in faith, to see how he has provided everything that we could possibly need.
how His provision is more than enough. Not just in our day-to-day lives, but in our ultimate reality that we were alienated from God and separated from Him. And our best was not good enough. But Jesus' best is more than enough. I want to invite you, if you're in the venue, won't you stand? If you're at home, won't you join us in prayer? Father God, we come to you as that man did with a sick child. I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we come to you acknowledging that we are prone to be self-reliant. We are prone to doubt your goodness. We are prone to hold on to things that we actually have no control over. And in your sovereignty, you are fully over thank you that we have a history of seeing you gently dealing with humanity's emotional immaturity so that we can have confidence you can deal with our sometimes emotional immaturity our doubt our unbelief I want to pray that you'll come and minister your goodness to us this morning minister the reality of your forgiveness not just that you've forgiven us and how can I even say just because there's nothing bigger but not just that you've forgiven us but that you love us that you delight in us that you dance over us with joy won't you help us where we're struggling to rest. We're going to work to put all the practical things in our lives that we need without which our bodies just can't cope. Help us to put those practical realities in, to sit down with our diaries, to rest, to delegate, to be alone, to create moments of intimacy, to fill those needs that we have. But most of all, won't you help us respond to you in faith? Help us as we take communion together our faith is stirred as we consider the great price that you paid to love us the great gift that you gave to redeem us our faith is stirred we come closer to you we draw nearer to you we hand over to you everything that is stopping us from resting everything that is weighing us down, everything we've tried to hold on to that is not ours to hold on to. In Jesus' name, let's take communion together. into a moment of worship and it's just an opportunity for you whichever aspect of this you most relate to just to bring it to God to ask God for faith to ask God to help you realize how much he loves you 
to let go of things that you've been holding on to. Would you take this opportunity as we sing just to come to God and allow His Spirit to minister to you? Thank you.